Why do we love scary movies? Like particularly at this time of year, they give us chills, they scare us, they make us jump out of our seat. Sometimes we even scream, but yet we watch them over and over and over again. Now we've got, of course, Halloween about a week away here. Scary movies are all over the place right now. So we thought we would talk more about this. Like why do we love this so much? So to help us understand our own obsession, people's obsession with scary movies, joining us now is Steve Steve Jordans, who is a psychology professor for the University. University of Toronto and director of the Alt Lab there. Steve, thanks for joining us this morning. No, great to be with you, Cindy. Do you like scary movies? Um, I'm not so much one of these people that goes to a lot of scary movies. I do like sort of high-risk behaviors, some of which have similar like scuba diving and, and various other things that have some of those facets, but not so much a scary movie guy myself. Okay, so you're saying there's some similarity between being a daredevil and watching scary movies? Yeah, I mean, both of them activate what we call our sympathetic nervous system. When we feel that fear, um, it kicks in that what we call a fight-or-flight reflex. And, and part of that is adrenaline coursing through our body. So we release this hormone, makes our heart beat faster, gets our breathing up, and actually makes us sort of super-powered uh, for a moment. We have a lot of oxygen going to our muscles. That's meant to help us to either fight whatever's scaring us or get away from it. But it's a very kind of... Um, energizing feeling and, and, a, and a really kind of interesting, different feeling that washes over us. Um, and when it happens in a safe context, then it can be fun. Um, nobody likes real fear, but we like flirting with fear. Okay, this is so fascinating to me. So is it, does it make us feel like more awake, more alive? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when this is a system that was kicked in, the idea of it is, I don't know, we're collecting berries and a bear pops out in front of us. And so suddenly, very quickly, our body just changes into this other mode where we we really feel sort of super powered. All our digestive processes and stuff are put on hold. All our muscles get this oxygen. And yeah, it's either like we're either going to fight that bear or we're going to run away from that bear, and either way, we need everything we got. So yes, we are very hyper-attuned to the external world. We are very ready to, to do something, to act in some way. So in our normal everyday lives, we don't actually get that experience. So are you saying that like watching a scary movie helps us get that? Well, I mean, we do in our normal lives as well. If, if you're a mother and you see your child, say, and a car is backing up and you're worried that, you're, that that car might hit your child, that same process will kick in. And that's what it's there for, actually, just so that you could run and grab that child and, and, you know, do these things very quickly, very fast. But often in the real world, there's a real danger attached to it, like that car backing up. And so it is scary. It's not enjoyable. We, we, you know, are using that power to escape danger and potential pain. So real fear is not enjoyable at all. But when you're in a movie theater and you get all that feeling um, and then just when you're really at your peak scared, well, you know, you're kind of in a movie theater and, and you're with other people. And suddenly all that fear resolves into usually laughter. Usually people laugh at each other. Uh, and now we have this social bonding thing happening of a bunch of people sharing an emotional state. Uh, and that tends to, to really sort of bond that group. So often we'll see typically younger people going to these movies and going as groups. And, you know, we'll hear them get scared and, and, and do that fear reaction. And then we'll hear the sort of laughter and the smiling and, and see it resolve into a much more safe bonding kind of experience. So it's more of a social thing. There's certainly social components to it. When, when you go through, I mean, let's, let's think of the real situation again, and we could talk about soldiers. You know, when they go through scary situations together, 
they talk of the bonds that are formed and often bonds for life uh, in those sort of situations. This is a much weaker version of that. It's not nearly the same level right. of fear. Um, but it is that same. You're sharing an emotional state with somebody. And anytime we do that, we come closer. We're a little more connected to that person going forward. Now, Steve, has this always been the case, like in terms of human psychology? Do we love scary before we had movies and was it scary <laughs> books? I know that in the Victorian era, they loved scary books yeah. and then it became scary movies. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe, you know, the whole, I mean, a lot of things, If even the book Frankenstein, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, that was a time in science where scientists were starting to learn about the body. We, we stopped thinking that the body was like an angel on earth, and we started thinking of it as a biological machine, and we were starting to get to know that machine. And, and so Mary Shelley at the time takes that sort of current um, interesting issue and, and turns it into Frankenstein, a, a human or a a monster, I guess you'd say, built out of human parts and brought to life with electricity. And yeah, suddenly everybody likes being scared of this potentially dangerous um, critter. So I think there is, you know, when you can feel the fear in a book and then put the book down, you know, that's what makes it enjoyable is you're simultaneously sort of in two worlds. You're in that scary world, but but you're in that scary world within a safe world. And anytime you need, you can sort of go back to that safe world. And so that's why I say it's more like you're flirting with fear. You know, one foot in the fear thing, but you can back out very easily anytime. And right. that's what makes it enjoyable. Oh, so, okay. So even before that, like we've always, I guess communities have always had stories of scary things, scary people. Like it's kind of just part of folklore, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, yeah, if we even go before books, there was that individual but for whatever reason, yeah, they became the witch of the town. Maybe old, curmudgeonly guy that you don't want to go near his kids. So, you know, all of that. Yeah, there's a you know, kind of the fear of the store. Are we going to go? And again, they're feeling what is actually the hormone that's released and it gives us that feeling. Um, but the oxygen goes from us more two of that. Steve, we're we're kind of losing does. you there. We're kind of losing you there on the phone there. So hold on one sec. We'll, can you can you hear us now? I can hear you fine. Okay, yep. good. Okay, there you are. No, you you were kind of cutting out there. You were saying such good stuff, and I wanted to hear what you were saying there. <laughs> so, so we have yeah, a historical I, I, love of this. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it literally is, you know, playing, we, we have this term playing with fire, right? Um, I think we do have this tendency to like to flirt with danger a little bit and feel that physical effect that it has on us. Um, if we can do it safely, then we enjoy it. Do you, so you, there's no scary movie that you would put on your list that you say, yeah, I like this one? Um, I mean, for, for me, the prototypical scary movie for me was Jaws. Uh, oh, it was the first one I saw. And so it's not a Halloween choice. kind of scary movie, but no, it's still. certainly the exact same phenomenon, you know, with the don't, 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 and all that. <laughs> That's the whole reason why people love Jaws, right? It still is. Like, yeah. don't be afraid to go in the water. Like, I'm still afraid to go in the water because of Jaws. But it's that same yeah. feeling that it gives us, right? Yeah, and I've actually, as an older person, I've now dove with sharks. You can do this in the Bahamas where they actually feed sharks in front of you. And, and I think part of my fascination with that was from watching that movie Jaws, that it did scare me for years. And then at some point I had the opportunity to do this, and I thought, that same sort of flirting with danger thing. Wow, right. that would be kind of fun to have sharks swimming all around you. Um, yeah. I love <laughs> so that. That's a real world version. We are addicted to that feeling. Steve, thank you so much for this today. 
No problem. I hope everyone has a great day. Right now, though, we're going to talk about young patients that we are seeing more and more of in our hospitals with respiratory viruses. Turns out nearly 30% of the emergency room visits to BC Children's Hospital from mid-September to mid-October have been for respiratory-related illnesses. That's up 10% from before the pandemic. So what is going on there? Joining us is Dr. Claire Seaton, a pediatrician at BC Children's Hospital. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Seaton. Good morning. Thank you. How much of this is part of like the regular, you know, flu cold season and how much do you think is unusual? Well, do you remember a few years back before COVID, we always did used to have the winter. No, we lost you there for a second. Oh, there she is. Sorry, we lost you there for a second. I'm going to get you to start that over again. Okay. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Go ahead. So I was just saying that parents certainly remember a few years ago before COVID, we would certainly have a, a, a full season where kids were back to school and there were more snotty noses around. And this is a, a normal pattern of respiratory winter viruses starting in the fall. But what's unusual this time around is some of the specific viruses that we track and monitor, like RSV or respiratory syncytial virus, is actually showing up a little bit earlier and in greater numbers than we would expect for this time of year. Okay, and why do we think that is? Well, last year, with all of our pandemic measures, the viruses such as RSV and also influenza basically disappeared, both here um, in British Columbia and across Canada and the world. And so the experts and theories suggest is that we just don't have as strong as immune response to those viruses because we haven't seen them for a while. So all that good work we did last year thinking, yay, we avoided, you know, cold and flu season. It's kind of coming around to bite us now. Well, for example, RSV is a very common virus. It comes around every season, and most um, kids will have actually had their first episode of RSV before the age of two years of age. And then once you've built up that immune response, we still get RSV, causing colds, um, but you, you fight it off a bit better. I think all of those things that we were doing last year and still are, like washing our hands and wearing a mask um, and, and staying home when we're sick, help us to reduce these respiratory viruses still. So is there anything unusual about the particular type of viruses that we're seeing? Well, we've been tracking RSV rates, um, both here in British Columbia and around the world. And what's different this time around is the spike is happening earlier. Normally here we start seeing cases in November, uh, but we're starting to see them now. And um, the, the news has been reporting big spikes of RSV in Quebec, for example, which has led to lots of hospitalizations. It's also been happening in the southern hemisphere. So for their winter, they were having higher rates of it and earlier. So it is a bit more different. And we are expecting the same thing to happen here in British Columbia. It hasn't quite hit the heights that it is in Quebec yet, but we're preparing for it if it does. Right. Is the treatment the same then when when a child presents with a respiratory virus? Well, all of these viruses, unfortunately, we don't have any um, magical treatments for them. They're viruses, not bacteria, so antibiotics don't work. Um, and for the most part, um, if your child's not that, that unwell, it's fluids, rest, and tender loving care at home. But parents obviously have lots of new things that they have to think about these days. So firstly, do I need to get my child to have a COVID test. Um, so make sure you look on the BC CDC website because a lot of these initial symptoms like cough, runny nose, sneeze, fever, sore throat are on that list for going to get COVID testing. It should be done at a, at a COVID test site as opposed to the emergency department. 
Um, the, the next thing is parents needing to decide whether their child is unwell enough to, to be seen either by a healthcare professional in an urgent care center or if they're that sick in an emergency department. And what I'd like to just highlight is there's some really excellent resources on the BC Children's Hospital website listing when you should take your child to hospital versus an urgent care center. Oh, okay. Interesting. Are there things that we can be doing to prevent that outcome, though? Like, are there things we can be doing to prevent the viruses to begin with? Well, that's a great question. And first of all, I mentioned previously, those layers of protection that we're using um, for prevention of COVID-19 are still the, sa- you know, the same for this. So hand washing, mask wearing, and staying home when you're sick, and keeping everyone in social space, all really important. There's other specific things, though, that we can all do. Uh, we've been talking about this RSV virus, but the other virus to talk about is influenza um, or the flu. And just announced a couple of days ago, um, the flu shot is now publicly funded here in British Columbia for everyone eligible. And that's everyone six months and older. So most of our kids. Um, so that it's available now. Uh, it is a really um, good uh, vaccine and it can make um, the, the flu course either kind of go away or much less severe. So really important to get signed up to get your flu shot. The other shots that I just want to mention, though, are your routine childhood immunizations. All of those shots that you right. get. Your young infants or your preschool boosters, for example. Now, they don't stop these viruses that I'm talking about, but they do stop the severe bacterial complications that can really, but really, you know, significantly affect some kids. So last year, there were, um, unfortunately, you know, with the pandemic, it was harder to get an in-person appointment or families were worried about going into healthcare settings. So there may well be some some young children and and infants around that have missed some of those really important shots. So I just, this is a really good time to think about that and to go out and talk to your healthcare provider and make sure you're up to date with those. I was just thinking though that like, you know, with this increase of respiratory viruses and hospitalizations, I thought, boy, as if parents don't have enough to worry about already. I know. And one of the, it is a really tricky time. And I think remember where there's some really good information and resources um, and, and have a look at that. And if you've got a child with a chronic condition, for example, like asthma, um, you're already thinking about that because you know coughs and colds can trigger an asthma attack. But it's also this is the time to go and review your asthma action plan with your healthcare provider. Make sure your child's taking the correct puffers um, that they know, you know what to do when they get sick. So it, it, I agree as a parent myself, this is a challenging time. Um, but the information and resources are there. And also remember, we kind of forgot about these colds um, last last fall. And so we did used to do this before and we just need to, to carry on as we were because sending our kids to school and all the environment, you know, the emotional, yeah. social and mental health aspects are so fantastic. They really are. All right, Dr. Seaton, thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Let's talk about what's been going on in Surrey this week. We know that Surrey City Council passed a very controversial bylaw amendment that limits what signs people can put up on their lawns, on their own property here. Council voted 5-4 to four on Monday night to expand that bylaw around election signage, and it also covers citizens' initiatives. Now, critics believe this is an attempt by Mayor McCallum and his supporters on council 
to essentially quiet the, keep the RCMP in Surrey group. That is the group that is opposed to the city's transition from the RCMP to a municipal police force. Well, there's also the group Surrey Police Vote. They are the ones that are running the referendum campaign, trying to get signatures to force a referendum on this issue. And Darlene Bennett, of course, who uh, has been in the news for quite a few years now, she's the widow of shooting victim Paul Bennett, is running that campaign. So we thought, let's talk to her about the reaction to all of this. Darlene, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me this morning, Simi. Has all this controversy over this bylaw impacted your campaign at all? Um, no, uh, it's actually helped. Um, people are, you know, mad. Their, their democracy is being muzzled. They're not um, having a say. It, 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 it's actually helping. Helping? How? Um, more people signing. I, I don't have a problem getting people to sign. Um, you know, they're actively coming to these signing events and um, signing. They're, they're upset. They want, they want a voice in this. So are you saying that the, the whole controversy and having this in the news has actually made people come and find you to sign the petition now? Yes. That's unexpected, isn't it? Yeah, it, it was. Um, but it's a good thing for us. So how has the signature collecting been going then? It's been going great, actually. Um, you know, we have less than a month left, and, and I think we'll meet our target of the 10% of all the Surrey ridings. We have um, 20,000 mailings going out later this week, and, um, you know, I, I'm hopeful that we will get there. Now, what is it that you hope to happen as a result of this? Like, if, even if you collect all these and the, the, your initiative is successful, does that automatically mean there is a referendum? No. Um, what I'm hoping, though, is that the provincial government listens to the second largest city in, in uh, the province and gives us a voice in this, that the people deserve to have um, a vote on it. They deserve, they're the ones paying for the policing. This is the policing that's protecting them. They deserve a say. Now, Darlene, I know this is very near and dear to your heart because of what happened to your husband, Paul. Has there been any progress in his case? Are they keeping you updated on it? Um, they, they are. I know it's still active and ongoing. And um, it, yeah, it just is what it is. And I know I have to be patient to wait for the answers. And, and I do have hope and faith that they'll get there. And why do you think there would be a problem switching to a municipal police force? Well, I worry about Paul's case getting, um, you know, um, jeopardized in this transition because I know that the Surrey RCMP and I hit work together. So I know that the Surrey RCMP, when that is um, changed over, when things of this magnitude happen, things get lost. And I just don't want Paul's investigation to get jeopardized. And, and truthfully, I don't think a change in police uh, uniform is, is going to make that big of an impact on the gang problem in Surrey. Have you noticed a change, like from when you started doing this and collecting signatures versus today? Has there been an increase in activity? More people interested? What are people talking to you about? Um, I think there are more people interested. Uh, mainly, they're very upset with our mayor, our current mayor. Um, but that is an election issue that will happen next year. Um, this is just to give people a voice. Either way, this issue just needs to be sorted out. It needs to be put to bed and I will accept the outcome, but, you know, it needs to be done by the people. All right. Well, Darlene, thank you very much for your time this morning. 
Thank you very much. And um, if you want to learn more about it, you can go to surreypolicevote.ca. All right, that's Darlene Bennett, head of the Surrey Police Vote Campaign, widow of shooting victim Paul Bennett there, talking about all this controversy over this Surrey bylaw amendment that happened this week. And she said it's actually been helpful for the cause. So you may notice that there are more police, RCMP in particular, on the roads this morning than you would usually see. What are they doing? Well, they're giving out warning letters to drivers who are breaking the law over a very specific issue. What is that all about? Well, drivers are supposed to slow down and move over when they pass a tow truck with flashing lights on. You may not have known this. Well, here's our contributor, Raji Sohal, in conversation with Al Lamb, who's the manager of fleet operations at BCAA. So if a vehicle is displaying flashing lights, drivers are supposed to slow down and move over. How many drivers know that that rule is actually law? You know what, this... This law isn't something that everybody knows, but this is the campaign that we're trying to promote the awareness of this law. Uh, and it's that slow down and move over when you see flashing lights ahead of you. I know um, tow truck drivers put their own lives at risk to assist other drivers. So walk us through what happens when they arrive on scene to assist a driver. So when a driver breaks down, it can be a number of reasons. It can be anywhere at any place. Um, so our operators pull over, put on their lights, set up a cone zone, and try to provide service to that member, whether it be a, a flat tire service or a jump start or even a tow. And what we want to bring is the importance of this law and, and the, the awareness to the public uh, to give us some room, just to give us some confidence that we can provide service effectively to the members and 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 keep our operators safe on the roadside. What do you hear from operators about what they experience? It's dangerous out there. It's scary. They don't know sometimes when they're going to get hit or if they're going to, you know, sometimes not make it home. You know, it's everybody's responsibility. And, and we all play a, a part in keeping our roadside workers safe by to knowing the law of slowing down and moving over so you can so we can have that room to work effectively and safely. Have you heard any harrowing stories from any of the operators? Oh, on a regular basis, you know, we're hooking up a, a vehicle on the roadside and for whatever reason, a driver doesn't move over and, and they come centimeters to, to that operator and the operator has got to jump into a ditch just to avoid being hit. So yeah, it's serious. This is somebody's life. This is somebody's family member that you know, almost didn't make it home. So we needed the help of every motorist to, to understand the law and to slow down and move over when you, when you see any flashing lights ahead of you, whether it be red, blue, especially yellow. So you're saying that drivers are supposed to slow down. What are people doing instead of slowing down? What are you guys seeing? Well, we're, we're not seeing them slowing down and, and we're not seeing them move over to the next lane. Um, and, and that's the law that, that keeps us protected. And it's not about punishing the person that's not doing it because, you know, that, that driver might not be aware. So this is bringing awareness to the law. That is so interesting. Raji Sohal with us now to talk more about this. So Raji, are you, are you seeing this on the road? Oh, I am seeing people zip by tow trucks with their flashing lights on. I see people honk at them for being in oh. their way. I have seen uh, drivers kind of, 
you know, worried looks on their face or the operators rather with worried looks on their faces as they kind of linger at the side of the road, yeah. waiting for a good moment to step out into the road to, you know, assist the the car that needs um, towing and whatnot. I've seen a lot of this behavior. So I wasn't actually aware that this is law. The reason is because it only came into law kind of recently. It's a law that was amended a few years ago to include yellow lights. You know, we, we, we see red and blue for police and ambulance and fire fighters. We're, we're subjected to, to the same dangers that they, they have to deal with on the roadside. And we're tasked to do the same dangers and, and, and risks. You know, it, it's been one tough year for all of us. And you know, distracted driving, as we know, is, is increasing, unfortunately. And, you know, everyone's tight on time. Uh, but there's, you know, absolutely no excuse that's somebody's life it, and we have to be able to give them the courtesy to, to do their job effectively and safely. So that's why it's so important, no matter what, what you're going through that day, to be present in driving and, and to, to put every distraction away and to focus on, on what's in front of you. And, and if you see some flashing lights, yellow, blue or red, slow down and move over, over and give us some room to work, please. You know, Raju, this reminds me of when they brought in the law about how you have to yield to buses. Yeah. And so buses have that on the back, like yield, it's the law, but that law isn't actually that old. It's it's less, I would say, was it, well, 20 years old or so, less than that probably. Uh, and yeah. yeah, people had to be reminded sometimes. Oh, yeah. And I still get bus drivers thanking me every time that I yield. And I'm just thinking to myself, uh, well, it's the law. Yeah, uh, but I guess I it have happens to. enough. Yeah, I guess it's happening to them enough times that people are just zipping by them. And, you know, he mentioned there that uh, people are distracted so much more than they were before. I have seen people on their phones more than ever during the pandemic. And literally people are at a red light and then they all, you see all these faces like turned down to their lap where their their phones are sitting. Because what, you have to check your text messages in the two seconds that you have free? I'm I'm glad that the RCMP are out on the roads monitoring this today. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's going to be a lot of uh, compliance going forward because if you don't comply, there's a three-point ticket waiting for you and a $173 fine. I would love to see more enforcement about these rules to the phone one in particular. You just hit on my pet peeve of the last like year once people started getting back on the roads it's everywhere it's like people forgot that that is the law that you're yeah. not supposed to have your phone they're just out there on their phones all the time. Yeah, my sister just picked up a motorcycle riding in the last year, and she said she's that much more aware of it because she can see into drivers' vehicles really well. And she said she's it, it makes her that much more vigilant herself as a rider because she knows that people are not, you know, looking out for her as much. That is so true. Raji, thank you. Thanks to me. You know, during the pandemic, there's been a real push for a lot of businesses to go digital. Some of them hadn't done that before. A lot of them expanded their online presence. It's just where so much buying now gets done. It's absolutely necessary for businesses. But here's the other downside, the flip side of that. According to a new poll by RBC, almost 50% of Canadian small business owners believe they will be hit by cyber crime in the next year. So how can they protect themselves? Well, for more on this, we're joined now by Adam Evans, who's the RBC Chief Information Security Officer. Adam, thank you for joining us. Good morning, and thanks for having me, Simi. What kind of cybercrime are we talking about here? So 
so the, the, the cybercrime economy has certainly, um, you know, it's it diversified its portfolio of services, I would say, over the last three or four years. In there's a lot of um, specialization in the cybercrime economy that can be everything from, you know, distribution of malware or malicious software, uh, spam and email campaigns targeting individuals uh, and organizations. It can be, it can be fraudulent transactions. There's a whole host of services that exist in this underground economy or the cybercrime economy. Um, and, you know, the opening comments are, are absolutely right. We are, this, this digital transformation that businesses are going through has certainly accelerated over the last few years and, and during the pandemic probably even more. Um, and cyber criminals tend to follow the money. And as move, more and more things move online, um, we certainly know that they are following, uh, following along and they are targeting people as they become more interconnected and more dependent on digital technologies. And the scammers are very sophisticated, aren't they? Like, I, how can small business owners who they already have enough to worry about, how can they detect and, and deal with some of these scams? So in, in the small and medium sized business world, you know, the, the landscape is a, is a very difficult one. So you have this this underground economy that is certainly growing um, and you've got this digital landscape that we are now operating our businesses in, whether they're small, medium or large. And understanding, um, you know, the, the, the business services that you operate with and the information assets or the, you know, the pieces of your business that, um, that, that one, uh, enable the resiliency of your business and, and obviously drive the revenue for your business you need to understand the assets that you are trying to protect as a small and medium-sized business owner. Small and medium-sized businesses don't always have the funds that a large institution would have to protect themselves. So really understanding where your most valuable assets are and devising a plan on how you want to protect those assets is highly critical. And that really starts with knowledge, asking the right questions, understanding where those uh, technological assets are, the data assets, the human cat, whatever it happens to be, um, and then sitting down and formulating a plan that you can practice on how you want to protect um, and what are those things that present the greatest risk to your organizations. So a lot of this is very much about planning. The second piece I would say uh, is really about education and the human factor in the security model is, is an important part of it, educating our employees and educating ourselves about this threat landscape that we are trying to operate in. And, you know, as we educate our employees, they become more aware of the kinds of things that they should be looking for. Right. And then obviously when they go home to their regular life, they become more aware of how to operate more safely and securely online. Right. So some really interesting um, interesting insights that were created off of this survey around small and medium-sized businesses. And, and if I can take a second, I'd like to kind of go through some of those insights because I think it gives us, um, it, it gives us a perspective of, of how small and medium-sized businesses see this threat landscape and, quite frankly, this business landscape that they're, they're now operating their businesses in. Um, and, you know, as we did this survey um, across 3,000 Canadians, um, you know, 440 small businesses, Nearly half of them, as you mentioned in the opening comment, think that they will become a victim of cybercrime over the next year. They also think that, you know, devices getting infected with things like malware is probably the biggest threat that they face. But what I can tell you is in this new cybercrime economy, um, cybercriminals are really targeting at scale. They become highly organized and 
they are launching attacks at scale and they're not overly discerning about the size of organizations that they are going after. They are playing a numbers game and they're trying to cast their net as wide as possible. Another interesting stat that came out of it is that only 24% feel knowledgeable about cybersecurity threats. And this is where the education part really comes in for small and medium-sized businesses is taking an active role in understanding this new business landscape and making sure that you're educating yourself and your people about one, how to operate safely there, but two, when there is a cyber event that happens to your organization, are you, do you understand how you need to respond and can you organize yourself in a time of crisis to do it effectively? I was looking at the list in the survey about the types of cybersecurity risks that these business owners felt that they were going to have to deal with. Um, and, it, and it was really interesting because it seems like perhaps they're a little naive on this front. 60% think that installing updated antivirus software will take care of that. Um, but encrypting and hiding all Wi-Fi networks, only 43% think that. Like, it does it, Is there a big disconnect here about like what the issue actually is? Well, I think what it demonstrates is how complex the cyber, the cyber landscape and cyber risk really is when you talk about it inside of an organization. And I mean, those are very good things from a hygiene point of view. But there is also, you know, protecting data. There's also protecting your, you know, your digital services, your intellectual property, your people, your email. Right. There's a bunch of different things that go into it. So, yes, for sure, there are some hygiene things that everybody needs to be concerned about. And I would say a good a good step in the right direction. But I'll go back to my previous comment, which is really about the preparation is getting people ready and understanding how to spot a phishing email. Typically, what we see in a lot of. That's a hard one. A lot of, (laughs) yeah, a lot of successful compromises is it starts with phishing or starts with a malicious email uh, and somebody makes a mistake, they click on a link um, and, uh, and, and the attack is on. Yeah. So educating the staff and educating people about how to spot those sorts of things really allows you to move further down the road as far as preparing your organization and defending it. Right. Adam, thank you so much for your time on that this morning. Thank you very much for having me.